Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I think the people who go into science are doing it to leave the world better off. I mean, when we were doing the Human Genome Project, I, I always took time to point out to our whole team that was doing this that they would tell their grandchildren someday that they had worked on this and they'd be really proud. There are few ways to be able to work on something where, where you can say, I'm going to, together with others, leave a legacy that's going to make the world better off. But it does mean you have to think not just about doing great science, you have to think about ensuring that it truly delivers on its promise and that that has a, a ethical dimension, a moral dimension, and it makes a, a full, well-rounded life if you're willing to take all that on. That's Eric Lander, one of the leaders of the huge project 20 years ago to spell out the entire human genome. He's the founder of one of the world's leading biomedical research facilities, the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We recorded our conversation a couple of months ago before he was nominated to join President Joe Biden's cabinet as his science advisor. This is really great to be on the podcast with you today, Eric. I remember so clearly when we met about 20 years ago, and we were doing an episode of Scientific American Frontiers, and you were so approachable. You were so, such a fellow human and not a guy in white robes on top of the mountain that when I didn't understand what you were telling me, I grabbed you by both cheeks and shook your face. <laughs> I was this great, this great <laughs> researcher, world-class researcher, and I'm shaking you by the cheeks. But that was a testament to your, <laughs> your humanity. I, I, you, you, you carry that with you wherever you go. Do you, do you concentrate on that? Well, no. I mean, look, I'm still a kid from Brooklyn. I think, I think you just have to always remember where you come from and Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I I got into biology by some crazy path and trained in math. So I always feel like I'm some interloper in everything I'm doing. The path you just described, starting out as a kid, so interested in math, that I, I read someplace that you had practically no interest in biology. None. None. Well, look, biology was utterly boring. It was just about memorizing stuff. I took biology my sophomore year of high school, and it was hopeless. You just memorized, you know, 
parts of the frog or the cat brain. <laughs> there were no principles, no theorems. Um, what I loved about math, it was so beautiful. From a small number of definitions, you could you could derive a whole universe. And you could actually find out new stuff about math. You were so smart and curious. You, uh, you got a Westinghouse Prize, I think, when you were 17 for, for a paper on something that I can't begin to understand the, the terms of, the quasi-perfect numbers. What in the world is that? So there's a concept called a perfect number. So a perfect number. Um, six. If you think about the things that divide into six, see, one divides into six, two divides into six, and three divides into six. You know, its divisors are one, two, three, and six itself, but let's forget that. So if I look at one, two, three, they add up to six. So the sum of the divisors of the number equals the number itself. That's the definition of a perfect number. Oh. That's perfect. And, that, and people have studied that. A quasi-perfect number um, is where the sum of the divisors, I have to make sure I get it right because it was back in high school, is I think one more than the number itself. Although I'm embarrassed to say I better check and be sure it's not one less. The, I get the idea. The question was what? And the question was, are there any? Uh. And, and nobody's ever found one. And so the question was, could any exist? And that's what I wrote about. But wait a minute. You actually answered the question, could any exist? How could you answer such a question? You'd have to go through a billion numbers. Well... I didn't answer the question in its entirety or even close to it. I, an I answered that if there were any, they would have to be really, really, really big and have a lot of different prime factors and things. Well, I didn't know if there, if there might be one lurking out there somewhere, in, you know, <laughs> deep in the dark. You could find out if there were any. They were very far away. And so as a high school student abstract questions, being able to wrap your head around things like that for young people around the world, that mathematics is often the first entry point into science and engineering because with just the paper and pencil or now a computer, you have all of infinitude at your disposal. You can discover a lot of things. And I think that can almost be addictive for a young person to realize that you could discover something that nobody had ever discovered before. And I think that's what people love to do in science. And you did that at 17, which is amazing. But, but what's even more amazing to me is that you had this addiction to math. You loved math. You saw beauty in it and didn't see any in biology. And yet you grew up to be a person who helped create one of the biggest advances in biology in human history. How did that happen? What got you interested in biology? Well, biology improved. It got a lot better. <laughs> I mean, when... It came up to your standard. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, look, when, even, even in the 1980s, when one of the best uh, institutes in all of biology was being created, something called the Whitehead Institute, which David Baltimore founded at MIT, in the early 1980s, they had no notion that data, that computation would play any role in biology. To them, 
data meant what you wrote in pen in your paper notebook. Because when they built the Whitehead Institute, the original plan had no provision whatsoever for a computer. And at the very last minute, they retrofit a space on the second floor to be a computer room. And I can date it just right around then, 1984, that people began to think maybe biology was going to turn into data and principles. And, well, this led within not so long to people thinking about sequencing the whole human genome and reading out all that information and reading out the genetic code of many, many species and the genetic variation in our own species. And and all these all these powerful things which have defined biology in this century, they only got imagined in the 1980s. So it just, it wasn't the biology of my high school classroom. It was a biology that drew me in, just like, you know, Alan, in the 1950s. Biology drew in physicists who helped create molecular biology. So the biology of, of the mid-1970s, utterly boring to me. But the biology that starts to grow up in the the 1980s and 90s, wow, so cool. That's what's great about science is this decade's science is often very different than last decade's version. And you brought that computational ability and the, the love for it to, I think, did, didn't you do the first draft of uh, the human genome? Well, with a lot of friends. It was part of, you know, so there was this human genome project and we were the largest lab in the human genome project. And I'm I'm really proud of of the contribution that came from our genome center. But it's it's fair to say that that it it, it, one of its great things was it was an international project. Mm. And you and you continue to share information around the world among all the people studying the genome, right? Well, we, we set the principle back then that all this information should be made freely available to everybody, wherever they are. There was, there was even a company that was competing with the Public Genome Project to try to make its own sequence of the genome that would be its proprietary asset. And we gave the data away to everybody, including them, because mm. that was the principle of the matter. And we've stuck to it ever since, that data should be out there as a foundation that thousands of scientists can use. And even even the teenager, you know, working in, in Idaho or wherever should have access to those data. I remember walking into a room, a huge room with you 20 years ago, and I saw what looked like hundreds of robots testing little vials of bacteria containing DNA. And that seemed like a, a view of the future. Now it's a picture of the past. What would the room look like now? Well, I mean, now, of course, we look back and it, and it looks pokey by comparison <laughs> because we were part of an effort over the course of 13 years to sequence the, the DNA of one person for a cost of $3 billion. So Whoa. today... We're sequencing the genome of one person. Well, I guess it comes off the metaphorical assembly line every nine minutes at a cost of about 600 bucks. Hmm. So I don't know what you can think of in the world which went from $3 billion to 600 bucks in the course of 15 or 20 years. I mean, 
suppose you could buy a house, you know, a million times cheaper or fly to California a million times cheaper. It just doesn't happen. But that's what's happened in our field. It's amazing. What, what's different that enables you to do that? Well, in some sense, at, at, at the most general level, the technique is kind of still the same in that it involves taking a piece of DNA and using the, the magic of DNA replication to extend it, to, to get an enzyme to add the letters of DNA in order and to somehow read out what those letters are. But the way we did the reading out part 20 years ago was a lot slower. Now, instead of, well, back then we would load it into little glass tubes mm -hmm. and have a little detector at the bottom of 100 tubes. Now we have a, a little slide, a little, little glass slide, and we can look at 10 billion of these reactions going on simultaneously. It's kind of the same reaction, but the difference between looking at 100 or looking at 10 billion, that makes a difference. <laughs> Staggering. Staggering. And I remember it stuck in yeah. my mind, that this wonderful image you had, because I asked you something about if you have, if you figure out one person's genome, does that really tell you about the human genome? And you said that it, it does in a large sense because we're 99.9% .9 alike, you and I both. Yes. And then you had this wonderful, wonderful image about a book. That's the, we both have the same book, but in my book, there's this, a word with a spelling that's used in Britain, and in your, your book, it's a spelling used in the States. It was such a wonderful image. Oh, I remember that. The books were the same, but the difference is the difference in my own particular genome, right? So you can find out. Exactly. Find out what's wrong with me or what special ability I might have. And, of course, what we've learned since then is by reading enough of those books, we can find that people with, say, um, adult diabetes, on average, have certain spelling differences more often than other spelling differences that are found in the people who don't have diabetes. It's not like that spelling difference absolutely determines whether you're going to get diabetes or not. It's like that spelling difference increases your risk. Mm. And we know there are now hundreds of genes that contribute to that risk. You know, I think there, there are simple one-gene diseases, cystic fibrosis and Huntington's, where you break one gene and you get the disease. I think for common diseases that we think about, Alzheimer's or heart disease or diabetes or, or schizophrenia, it's actually the product of many different genes being perturbed. And so since I saw you and we talked about those things, we've now come to understand the genetics, not just of these rare single gene diseases, but how to access the genetic factors underlying the common conditions that everybody has. And that's, it's been really interesting. It's a whole new kind of genetics that, that's involved a lot of biology and a lot of math. Are things that you hope to achieve been accomplished? Were you disappointed? And did you have any pleasant surprises that you didn't expect? Oh, oh, um, almost all pleasant surprises because things have gone so much faster and so much further than I ever imagined. 
Um, they, if you had told me when we were finishing up the Human Genome Project, if you had told me that we would have millions of genomes sequenced, that we would have found 100,000 different genetic connections between spelling differences and particular diseases and traits, I, I, thought, I would have just thought that was unimaginable. And yet all that's happening. And it's gotten even better than that. It's gotten to the point where we can read out the, the genetic programs that are running in individual single cells. And, and you know, I, I don't know. I can't be disappointed about any of that because it didn't even occur to me that that would happen in my lifetime, let alone that that would happen within, within less than two decades of finishing up the Human Genome Project. And that's what I try to teach my students is that, you know, the curve keeps going up and up and up exponentially. And, you know, in the short term, you always feel like, oh, my goodness, I didn't get that much done this year or, oh, it, things are dragging. But if you if you look over periods of five or 10 years, it just blows your mind. It seems to be moving at such a rapid pace. And I wondered if that pace has slowed or been or hit a wall because of COVID. Are people going to the lab? Well, well, they are at the Broad. You know, we, uh, as, as you might know, when COVID uh, really began to hit the United States, uh, at the Broad, we, we were shutting things down for a while in March, but we ramped up the creation of a new COVID testing I know. facility. So, you know, it meant we had to swing this into action. Um, it's pretty much a decision over a weekend. Uh, one of our faculty members, Deborah Hung, who's an infectious disease doc, said to the person who runs our genomics facility, Stacy Gabriel, she, Deb says to Stacy, we just got to stand up testing for, for, you know, this coronavirus. They made a plan over the course of three days. They implemented the plan over the next week and they launched it. And, you know, I guess, um, well, we're talking right now near the end of October. And uh, I think it'll be tomorrow that we hit our four millionth test. Mm. We're, we're doing something like 70,000, 80,000 tests a day that constitutes, I don't know, one in every 13 tests in the United States. We never imagined we'd be doing that. But if you're running a large-scale genome center that was used to doing the Human Genome Project and what came afterwards, I guess the answer is what you do in a, the middle of a pandemic is you turn those skills to making sure that you can do testing for the nursing homes and the assisted living facilities and the, the free state testing sites and for more than 100 colleges and universities here in, in New England. So um, certainly that's taken a fair amount of attention. But I would say that science hasn't slowed down because of it anywhere. If anything, we're watching the scientific community come together and collaborate at much faster speeds because everybody's driven by the necessity of understanding the pandemic uh, rapidly. And so, you know, there's an international collaboration set up to understand the genetic risk factors for serious COVID disease. And in normal times, that such a thing would have taken a year to set up. And instead, it took weeks to set up. And people were all sharing data. So when the dust settles, I think it'll be pretty amazing to see how fast science can run when it needs to. And we should be asking, maybe we should always be running that fast. Why not?
And of course, what we'd really love is we, don't, we should all be out of this business because the pandemic passes. You said it. When we come back from our break, I ask Eric Lander how the gene editing tool CRISPR is being recruited in the battle with the coronavirus. And we talk about his recent podcast called Brave New Planet. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Eric Lander. I was curious to see you say someplace that you are able to use CRISPR, the gene editing tool, in, in figuring out testing. Is that right? You can, you can improve on testing using CRISPR. How does that work? Well, it turns out that there are a number of different CRISPR systems. You know, CRISPRs, as you know, they recognize certain pieces of DNA and they cut that piece of DNA. They can be programmed to to recognize a segment and cut there. But others, what, what happens is they can recognize and cut RNA. And when they find a matching piece of RNA, they can be directed to cut it and actually many other things. And so if you built a CRISPR that could end up recognizing the coronavirus. Turns out that, um, you know, a colleague of mine, Feng Zhang, here at the Broad, developed an assay, calls it Sherlock, which you can use to recognize viruses. And so they've they've been developing it into a, 
uh, very little device that can be used to recognize coronavirus. It's amazing. Do I have this right? CRISPR uses a bacterium's ability to recognize something it, it, it wants to mess with. Exactly. It uses a protein from a bacteria, and that protein can be programmed to recognize any particular DNA sequence that you want. So it's a programmable search mechanism. You can dial, dial up the, the, the thing you want to find with like a telephone or something. You, can just, you just tell it where to go and it goes. Telephones don't do that. I have the wrong analogy. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes you reach for the wrong analogy. But that, that's amazing that we, we think of CRISPR as, I think of CRISPR as an editing tool. But this idea that it's a search tool before anything else is really valuable to you. So you can, you can use that when you're searching for COVID. Or anything else. So indeed, what, what was the purpose of CRISPR? Well, it was an innovation that bacteria came up with about a billion years ago. And its purpose was if a bacteria had previously been infected by a virus, the bacteria kept a little snippet of those genetic instructions from the virus as a reminder. And then it would use that to program its search engine, its little search protein, to constantly be on the lookout. If you ever see anything that looks like this, destroy it. <laughs> right. That's what CRISPR is for. It's a defense mechanism, right? It's the immune system of a bacteria which, you know, it's a single-cell organism, so it can't have immune cells. Its entire immune system there can be programmed up with little reminders of viruses it saw before and says, cut them. But it turns out the protein is so smart that if you give it different instructions, it'll go search and destroy whatever you want. That's just spectacular that you're working with these little guys that we can't see with the naked eye. And you're doing this monumental work. You know, it's no surprise. If you want to do something, ask the experts. And who is more expert than bacteria? <laughs> they have been at their job longer than anybody. <laughs> That's great. That's a great image. So you, you, you're, you're making use of what bacteria know to test for COVID. Is there any hope that yes. you might get an actual uh, way to defeat it? Oh, goodness. My guess is that the human immune system is going to be the right solution for that. That um, we're stealing the bacteria's immune system for detection, but I think the human body's own immune system is up to the job. And that's where the work with, with developing vaccines or antibodies or things like that, I, I think, really go the furthest, is... is Let's come up with rapid ways to stimulate the human immune system to do the job. And, you know, it's impressive. People are developing vaccines right now faster than ever. And we have to learn how to do this for the future because it's, it's unfortunately not going to be the last time we're going to need to respond quickly to infectious agents. It seems like there's a stage in the development of a vaccine that you can't really speed up very much because it involves the human response to the vaccine. Am I, am I right about that? Well, so far, that's right. Um, the design the vaccine, we can do very rapidly. 
mm. even produce the vaccine, we can do very rapidly. Test the vaccine to see how effective it's going to be across genetically diverse humans and how often it might cause a side effect. We don't have a solution other than trying it in a lot of people right now. What would be great is if in the next couple of years, we could work out ways to find readouts that would tell us faster that this vaccine candidate was likely to work or likely to have a side effect. So I think we, we better not sort of hang up our, our uh, you know, skates when, when we're done skating through the creation of, of COVID vaccines. We, we better still be out there trying to figure out ways to rapidly recognize in advance which vaccines will work and which ones will be safe and how to, how to steer them in the right direction. Let me get back to um, the genome. You, you've been surprised by some of the abilities that your early work have led to. Do you have targets for the future or do, are you waiting to see what comes up? as you work? Oh, you know, how can you not have targets for the future? So we went from not being able to read out the whole human genome to it becoming completely routine. We went from not being able to read out the genetic program running in single cells to reading it out in millions and millions of cells and having pretty soon a complete catalog of of the genetic patterns of every different cell in the human body. I think the next frontier is going to be trying to, trying to understand all the kind of programs, like if I can use an analogy, the computer programs that a human cell knows how to run. There's only a finite number. I don't know what that number is, Alan, 10,000, 20,000, you know, programs that cells could run. But I would expect that in the coming decade or so, students will just, you know, have the lookup table and they say, oh, yes, this cell is running program number 997 that does the following things and works in the following ways. Just like, you know, in a computer, there, there's no surprising programs. They're all written. But evolution has a bunch of programs. We should know them all. Uh, we should be able to tweak them as needed. I think we're moving from the world of my biology in, in sophomore year of high school where everything was sort of, you know, memorizing a blizzard of details to recognizing that biology is finite. A finite number of genes, a finite number of cell types, a finite number of programs, and, and that the periodic table of biology will be as well known as the periodic table of chemistry. Ah, huh, that's great. That's great. You, you know, I'm listening to you. I'm thinking you should have your own podcast. And then I realized you do. I do, <laughs> at least a little bit. <laughs> it's called Brave New Planet. So Brave New Planet is a project that involves just seven episodes. And it, it took a year and a half to make. So uh, this was a labor of love. But it was to take on hard questions at the interface of of science and society. So it, it's really important that everybody, not just scientists, grapple 
with how we want to use scientific and technological possibilities. And I think, you know, one of the best ways to engage people in, in science and technology is, is give them challenges. So what are some of the challenges? Uh, one of the episode take, episodes takes on the, the question of deep fakes. So artificial intelligence has, has given rise to all sorts of creativity, amazing ways to, to by artificial intelligence, create pictures and, and give back voices to people who have lost their voice and, you know, all sorts of creative stuff. But it's also given rise to the capability to create deep fakes, to make, make videos or, or of politicians saying things they never said or fake sex videos of, of people. And so that's like an example. So what do we do about it? So one of the episodes takes on the question of deep fakes and tries to explain the science and technology behind it, but also all the political challenges and, and leaves the listener with the question of, okay, you're one of the stewards of this brave new planet. What should we do? Get engaged. You can understand this stuff. And it does it for topics like, you know, solar geoengineering. Should we block out some of the sun's rays to mitigate climate change? Lethal autonomous weapons. Would it be better for wars to be fought by automated robots doing it? Um, Built-in biases in predictive algorithms that decide who to recommend for a job or how long a sentence to recommend for a defendant. And then this technique called gene drives of using CRISPR, in fact, to push genes through a whole population that, you know, might help defeat malaria, but, you know, could also spread and get out of hand. And so for each one of them, I've picked something where there's so much interesting science and technology to learn about. There's a lot of hard choices to be made. And I've tried in every case to pick things where I don't know exactly what the right answer is because I'm not trying to advocate for the answer. I'm advocating for people learning enough and getting engaged and realizing that we're going to get the planet we choose. So that's why Brave New Planet, you know, the, the tagline is utopia or dystopia. It's up to us. <laughs> that's great. I still have a fundamental faith that if, if we really engage people, we'll make wise choices. But then it means that we can't just leave it up to scientists. We can't just leave it up to politicians. We actually need people feeling like, yeah, they're stewards of this planet. They can learn and get engaged. And that's my hope for Brave New Planet is that it'll interest listeners. And also we're trying to get a curriculum so that high schools or colleges that want to use it uh, will we'll be able to make good use of it. Yeah, yeah, that's so great. And it really reflects your interest in knowing things and learning more about what nature is like for the benefit of the people around you. Yeah. I get the sense that you see a moral component or an ethical component to what you do and what all of science does. Deeply. I, I think the people who go into science more often than not are doing it to leave the world better off. I mean, when we were doing the Human Genome Project, I, I always took time to point out to our whole team that was doing this that they would tell their grandchildren someday that they had worked on this and they'd be really proud. Um, there are few ways to be able to work on something 
where, where you can say, I'm going to, together with others, leave a legacy that's going to make the world better off. But it does mean you have to think not just about doing great science, you have to think about ensuring that it truly delivers on its promise. And that that has a, a ethical dimension, a moral dimension, and it makes a, a full, well-rounded life if you're willing to take all that on. Well, as always, when I get into a conversation with you, I want it to go on for uh, about another 24 more hours. But we, we have to bring this to a close. And we always end our shows with seven quick questions that invite seven Uh-oh. quick answers. But no, they're, they're not embarrassing and they're fun. You, are you game? Okay. Okay. Uh, well, why not? For you, absolutely. <laughs> okay, number one. What do you wish you really understood? Consciousness. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a hard one, boy. If I get a wish, and if the genie appears and I get a wish, I, why am I going to wish for something small? <laughs> How do you tell someone that they have their facts wrong? The best way is to start, in my, my experience, the best way to start is, I'm confused about something. Can you help me understand this? And hopefully it's, it's right at a crack in the argument and you use it to gently pry apart the argument so they see for themselves rather than you tell them, boy, have you got your facts <laughs> wrong, which, which rarely works. Not to say I don't sometimes do it, but it rarely works. Great technique. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Oh, it's always, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I have no idea. I still can't answer that question. I don't know how you're supposed to know the answer to that. Yeah, and, and if you do, will you stick with it at, at your peril? No, of course not. Yeah. Exactly. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Boy, that's a tough one. I think you do it by talking very slowly and slowing down the conversation. Um, you know, it's like in a football team, you know, in a football game, how do, how do you stop a team that, that wants to play hurry up? You gotta, you gotta find ways to just slow it down. That's interesting. I gotta try that. Let's say you're at a dinner table, you know, those days when they had dinner tables. And, I recall vaguely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And let's say that comes back and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? Oh, ask them about themselves. If you if you want to get a good conversation going, it's always best to start by finding out about you know, something about somebody else. It's always more interesting, too, than talking about what you know. Next to last question, what, what gives you confidence? Young people. That the world gets better because there are young people who come along and see what's wrong and aren't afraid to try to fix it. Mm. I think, you know, trying to stay young, trying to look at things with fresh eyes is really important. But, but young people, this is the, this is the blessing I have of being around a university is you have a steady flow of unjaded, brilliant young people who are still idealistic. And that's my greatest hope. What book changed your life? You know, I don't think I have an honest answer for you. I can point to people who changed my life. Uh, 
But in a way, I don't know that any book changed my life. But as much as I love books and as amazing as books are, the interaction with a person who cares about you can have such a huge effect on a life. And it's something I think about whenever I interact, particularly with students, that I know what a difference some people made for me at critical moments in my life when I was un- in- insecure, or uncertain, lost, um, and they could give me confidence or guidance. That's an important thing everybody should think about because whether you like it or not or know it or not, you will change people's lives. And you, you may not know it, so you might as well always be paying attention to see if you can change them in a, in a good way rather than a bad way. That reminds me of your answer to another question, which could be question number 7A in our talk, <laughs> which is, what is the meaning of life? And I loved your answer. Do you remember what you said this one time? No, what did I say? What did I say? You said purpose and people. Yes, I stick. I still stand by that. Purpose and people. Well, you're a people that I've really had a great time talking with, and I, I look forward to our next time, Eric. Just great. Thank oh, you. Oh, I do too, Alan, and I want to do it in person. Last time you and I were on a bench and we talked outside on a bench, I'm looking forward to getting together and doing that again. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much for being here. Bye-bye, Eric. Bye-bye, Alan. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Eric Lander is President Joe Biden's nominee to head the Office of Science and Technology Policy. This is the first time that position has been elevated to cabinet level. In 2001, he was the lead author of the first draft of the human genome. In 2004, he became the founding director of the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Broad was able to ramp up its research technology to provide high-volume testing for the COVID-19 virus. You can find out more about that at broadinstitute.org. That's B-R-O-A-D institute.org. Eric's podcast, a collaboration with the Boston Globe, is called Brave New Planet. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Emily Levesque, who has written a charming and illuminating account of the joys of being an astronomer. Her book is called The Last Stargazers. I remember walking into an observatory dome in an afternoon before I was going to observe and thinking that it reminded me of a theater on the afternoon before a play because it's kind of dark and cool inside and there's a whole crew checking instruments and making sure everything's working properly. 
for when the stars arrive. It's a very, it was a very literal comparison. I loved that sort of wonderful waiting feeling of we're getting everything ready. We have our plan. We have our script. We know what we're going to do. And then watching the sun go down and watching the planet spin and getting ready to go inside and say, all right, now we're starting. That's the moment I think when I and when many of my colleagues just really stand there and go, boy, this is a good job. Emily Levesque, starstruck, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.